0: That's Henry. (laughs) It's like an egret trying to talk to a moose. (laughs) Dog contains multitudes. He really does. Nathan, I loved the questions that we got from the listeners the last time that we asked for questions. I think we should do that again.
1: I completely agree. As we kind of trend towards the finale of the show, we definitely want to make sure that everyone feels like they've had a chance to hear us talk about what they are interested in hearing. Specific questions for us or design elements that maybe we haven't touched on as heavily over the course of
0: the show? Design or production.
1: To ask us a question or submit a topic for consideration, the best ways to do that are the Design Games community on Google+, or you can get in touch with me through the contact form on my website, ndpdesign.com and those will get filed for the upcoming listener question episode.
0: Look for links to both of those destinations in the show notes.
1: My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic
0: artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games podcast this time, Will? Let's talk about the ways that funding and realizing our vision affects our goals and our designs to help not only bring that design to fruition, but make it worth the time and the money that we spent on it. At some point, the question whether or not the actual product, the actual object of money is going to get involved, mm-hmm. which is fine. I'm not I'm not I'm not a particularly good capitalist, but I also am not um, I don't hate the idea of, of commerce. Mm-hmm. I think that it serves a purpose. It doesn't serve all purposes. Mm-hmm. But is that the question is either how am I going to get the software I need to make this thing? How do I buy the art or the fonts? I'm going to get to make this thing that's that's funding in advance. Mm-hmm. How am I going to decide how much to charge for this thing? Where am I going to sell it? How much do I get out of that money that is charged? How mm-hmm. do I turn the thing that I made and, and the time that I spent making it into, and I'm going to say this as romantically as possible, the opportunity to make the next thing?
1: Yes, when you're looking at your design output as a body of work you know you do a thing you learn you get better at it you do another thing you learn from that you get better at it the return on the first thing mm-hmm. that is part of what you learn and what you can turn into the next thing and the successes you have with your first project give you a higher baseline from which to build your next project it could be your primary goal right to make some amount of money or that could be in order to achieve my other goals, right? In order to achieve the hardcover book that goes into game retail stores that is what I want for this project, I'm going to have to spend a certain amount of money on it. That is a totally valid part of your design goal and your your measure of success. And a lot of the time, that's going to come from doing a smaller project that does not have that physical format as the final goal, right? right? So which is to say that we're going to be Talking about funding strategies and how to think about um, getting your your piece out into the world in a way that generates some kind of return, but it's totally valid to not want to get money out of it. But also it's totally valid to want to get money out of it. Right. That's kind of one of the first forks in what is my thing going to be? Like, what what is the the form that my game is going to take? Right. Because if you want the game to go into commerce. That's going to drive some of the decisions about the form in a way that if you don't care about your game making money, you're actually you're you're a little freer in the decisions you can make because there's less consequences to making improper ones or ones that aren't aligned
0: with how the market works. Right. right? I, yeah. We're yeah. We're improper in alignment. Right. I mean, essentially, we're more likely to, to experiment on a free thing. Right. Than we are to gamble X dollars on. I don't know if that's good or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I don't care about making money off of this thing, then I can I can make it a set of audio files that you need to set up on three different sets of speakers and
0: put in a specific room in order for someone to experience it correctly. Right. Right, because... You don't need to solve the process of how does one sell three audio files necessarily or right. how much of a risk... You've lowered the or, risk, the, yeah. the, 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 the opportunity yeah. cost. Or how
1: there. many people out there are actually going to want to spend money on this thing. Right. right? You, can, you can do weirder niche stuff for free in a way that has a little more room for you to play with with those kinds of things. But if your goal is to either make X amount of dollars or X amount of sales, or you know, I only spent, I think this is pretty common, right? Like I spent $300 on my first thing mm-hmm. and I saw how far that went and what I got out of it. My next thing, you know, I, I want to, to make it better, longer page count, better art, you know, or more art or whatever. I'm going to need $3,000 because now I have a baseline of what I got for my $300. Right. So the next set of, of decisions are about like how do I design a thing that is going to generate that money that then I can bring
0: into the next thing that I want to make. I'm going to use illustration as an example, or I'm just going to say art. And if if, if one assumes that I mean fine art or illustration, that's fine. But mm-hmm. in other words, in theory, a $1,000 illustration or piece of art will look better than a $500 piece of art, which is not actually how it works, but let's say, mm-hmm. and therefore sell more times at $1,000 a piece than a $500 piece of art will. That's one of the core thinking of mass producing art, mm-hmm. right? Is that if I hire quote unquote better artists now, mm-hmm. For double the money, I will sell more copies because the cover of the book will be cooler. Hmm. Now, better can mean a lot of things. Money is not guaranteeing that kind of quality or the ability to connect. But the general notion is sound. The actual specifics of it are always very messed up. But for example, if it is, I'm going to record my three-part audio game on the best possible mics that I can get that is probably a better idea than recording it on the worst possible mic you can get. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, the best possible mics you can get might not be great mics, but also but you can make up for some of that with skillful delivery and passion and knowing the right and knowing that mic really well and so on and so forth. We get trapped in disguise by trying to quantify the theory sometimes, which is you have to spend money to make money. Mm-hmm. And that is true to a point. Yeah. Especially if we assume that that time is a form of investment and I absolutely believe that it is, but that dynamic is it's when we quantify it that we get into the weeds, and that's especially where I feel mm-hmm. like one of the problems that we have is – and by we, I just mean anybody who tries to engage in, for lack of a better term, show business, mm-hmm. art art and commerce, the creation of a, of a craft or a product for money. We have a, a, an issue of not just what we think something is worth versus what we hope the audience will think it is worth, right. but is also the notion of the costs – In making a thing that we hide from ourselves intentionally or otherwise, and then intentionality is super important. The thing that we say, well, I'll lay it out for myself for free. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can do that for free money-wise, but don't discount to yourself the idea that the time you spend doing that is valuable. Right. If you're going to make a decision between giving a thing away for free or selling it, or selling it for less than you mm-hmm. think it is worth or whatever. Make sure those are decisions. You don't want to find out that you accidentally made that decision and are now stuck with it. Right. You don't want to back into one of those ideas on accident. Mm-hmm.
1: Even if you decide that you're going to put something out for free, you're still entering a market, right? And so there's something we can talk about about thinking about what market you're going into and kind of doing your due diligence or, or making your decision mm-hmm. about, I want to be in this market. If you want to be in the people can get my thing for free market, right? there's a whole set of dynamics that change over time. And that's one thing about this conversation is that we're kind of talking about the things as they stand now-ish, 2016, with the tools we have available and right. that kind of thing. A lot of these things are better documented and are easier to look up as time goes on and, you know, people... Publish their guides to this certain platform or like you know how how this kind of distribution works and that kind of stuff
0: do their blog posts about their year of sales that right kind of thing yeah so
1: like that information is is out there so first of all part of doing your, your due diligence about should I sell this thing how much should I sell it for is look up what other things like yours are out there and what they're selling for and what people's experiences have been right because that's context for you to make the decision but right now the here's a thing for free market is pretty full, right? Like lots of people offer lots of different kinds of things for free of vastly differing uh, goals with the product and like levels of quality of execution. So you end up getting into a signal noise market where your goal is, is to find your audience and distinguish your product in some way so that someone who has literally nothing at stake, they're not spending any money, chooses to click on yours instead of someone else's. And so part of that can feed back into your whole design process of like, how do I design a game that I get out there to people in a way that they don't have to pay for it, but it breaks through this barrier. And for some people, it's name recognition, right? Like it's easier once people kind of know you or know your company or know your products or know your brand or whatever, they're more likely to look at your free stuff than when no one knows what your thing is yet, which is kind of ironic, right? But that's how psychology and... and Network dynamics work. So that's one thing, right? You can release stuff for sale first to build up a brand and then do your free stuff later as part of a strategy of, you know, doing weird stuff or experiments or making things more accessible to people. And they'll know about it because they already know your stuff that's actually less accessible.
0: One of the things to think about when doing, whether it's free or a pay what you want product, which of course, pay what you want, right, is where you put it up for a price that is determined by the end user. And that Mm -hmm. price could be anywhere from zero to X, where X is the amount of money that the end user feels like is generous to pay. The issue is that if a product is free somewhere on the internet for download, the download numbers don't mean anything. Not necessarily. They're not necessarily helpful to you to gauge sales because it doesn't mean anybody read it. It doesn't mean anybody played it. There are customers who, and often well-meaning, download mm-hmm. everything they can get for free in the hopes that, well, I'll read that on the plane, I'll read it on the train, I'll read it this weekend, and can't get around to it. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful, too, to think about not having your download numbers. First of all, think of thinking of them as sales numbers as in terms of success, especially in game design. Because if somebody buys a thing but never plays it, we don't know if you're, how successfully executed your game was, and mm-hmm. neither do you, necessarily. Like, you've learned about it as a product, but you're not, you might not yet have learned about it as a game.
1: And that's kind of a, an existential yeah. issue, right? Like, other than very specific circumstances, like, you generally don't know how the game is working out in the world. <laughs>
0: Right, yeah, very often that's and, true. And
1: yeah. you often hear about the things that don't go as well, and you don't hear about all the times that it goes well. Right. So that's definitely something that you just
0: need to get used to,
1: I think. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, at some level that's absolutely true. There's a certain degree of that uh, that you have to have, have to have affordances for personally, which right. is the notion that there's going to be a lot of telemetry that you're never going to get.
1: Right. And it's like more people will download your thing, than we'll read it. More people will read it, than we'll play it. More people will play it, than we'll tell you they played it. Right. Right, like that That funnel exists even if, the, if it's wide. Or narrow at the top,
0: right? That yeah. funnel, whatever. Whatever game designer uh, that you admire or revile, they have that same funnel. Not the mm. same size, I said, but the funnel exists. Yeah. that that's important when determining what how you're going to fund something is. If you say, "Well, I have this free thing, and I, and and it was downloaded twenty thousand times. So if I charge a buck for the next one, I make twenty thousand dollars." First mm-hmm. of all, obviously that's not true because not everybody who's going to download a thing for free is going to download a thing for a dollar. Right. You may or may not know how many of those twenty thousand people are the same person, mm-hmm. and you may not know how many of them. Are as of yet sold on the next thing. They're right. like, well, I loved the first one. So if your goal is to have a thing, build, be a brand builder because it's great, mm. having it be free is not enough. Mm. It has to be irresistible. Yeah. It has to be, I want to read it right now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes paying for that is a better way to do it. To have somebody go, I paid a dollar yep. for this. I want to see what I got.
1: There's a observed phenomenon of Charging a little bit for something will increase engagement with it over it being free. Yeah, I'm sure that there's some kind of marketing or psychology related term for this, but uh, I think at least in the self-published circles, it's like a thing that that happens. And that was the whole foundation of the I don't know if you remember the, uh, the Ashcan Front mm-hmm. booth mm-hmm. at GenCon. I still was, have a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, Paul Sega and Matt Snyder. Ran a booth at GenCon for a couple of years called the Ashcan Front, where people had games that they were playtesting, and they produced physical ash cans and sold them for eh, between five and fifteen dollars, depending on kind of the piece and how well realized it was. These playtest versions were conceptualizes ash cans, which comes from comics, is my understanding. That's mine too. Yeah. And like, but the, the basic idea is like, here is something that is relatively cheap to produce and is able to be given away either for free or for a low price point in order to kind of just get the, the, the word out about this thing. It kind of comes from pre-digital comics
0: Yeah. And I I feel like comics is borrowing the term too, but that is where, that's how I learned it was yeah yeah, through comics. And I think of it as like a chapbook in poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. So the idea with that was if people buy a real thing, they'll be more likely to read it and get engaged by it and play it. I think they had that for two years, if I remember right. And I believe that the information that we learned from it was kind of was kind of all over the place. Like it worked for some of the people who participated and it didn't work for other people who participated. So that's to say that this isn't
0: like a, there's no silver bullet with this kind of stuff. Right. We did not successfully explore that wilderness, but we did Mm. try. And part of that I think also is because some of those ash cans, the information that the designer got was mm -hmm. that I shouldn't take this much further. Right. That Was that it's done. Yes. Yeah. I'm not well, done in the sense of like complete.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like this is as much as I'm going to do with this project. Yeah. And I think that was just because I happened to, you know, personally know a lot of the people involved. I think that did happen with some people where that the, the act of making the ash can happen taught them that they had gotten all they wanted to out of the process and were not particularly interested in going forward with it. Right. Right. Which is a valuable thing to learn.
0: It saves everybody time and money. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And also some of the actual physical pieces are, are great kind of lovingly hand-assembled yeah, like custom pieces. So in terms of artistic development of the people who did those, I think they were those were definitely successful even if they ended up not following up with the game. All of that is kind of to poke at this notion of you can make a decision about free or for a low amount of money. You can contrast that with what your goal for the thing is i think the idea of like here is something relatively cheap to buy that's kind of in development Mm -hmm. i think that's a, a tension that kind of resolved with people aren't as interested in that but for a finished thing it's still an open question and depends a lot on name recognition and the constellation of products that it exists in and all that kind of stuff
0: The experiment, essentially, for all for the pricing and design of all this stuff is ongoing. And even the answers that we feel like are, are the answers to solved problems can be unsolved for the purposes of experimentation and resolved with different solutions. And, and I think this is super important, if we had had this conversation seven years ago five years ago, it would have been a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible it will be a very different conversation if we were to have it again in a year. Right. right. You never know what the new technology, whether it's for crowdfunding or if it's Patreon or if it's a change in the distribution tiers, a change in retail, the addition and the acceptance of a PDF market, Mm -hmm. or whatever the next thing is going to be, audio, RPGs, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. that is either going to change up the answers or add answers. Yeah. Add options for you.
1: There was a period of time where, where I sold more physical books than PDFs. Until that changed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I sold more PDFs and physical books for a while. And then it kind of goes back and forth depending on the title, the platform, and the ecosystem kind of that grows up around them. Right. And so the question of should I put my thing out in just in digital or print or digital and print is uh, a question that you kind of have to look at the landscape at the time for the kind of thing that you're doing. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that's just one example of the way that these things change and fluctuate over time.
0: And the different philosophies one can bring into it is the mm-hmm. notion of some, the, there are some very successful game uh, publishers who insist on their PDFs being separate products from their print books and it's mm-hmm. going just fine for them and some who bundle their PDFs with their print books and it's going just fine for them and those are decisions that are allo- that you're allowed to make and they're allowed to remake them if they mm-hmm. change their mind and they're allowed to change the back if mm-hmm. they try again. They're, everybody's trying stuff out. yeah. Um, and the things that work for somebody may not work for their neighbor mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that either one of them is n- necessarily taking the wrong approach And it's also relative to the amount of expertise,
1: time and effort you have to make those decisions. If you are not interested in staying on top of changing trends in digital distribution, then maybe you just set up the thing that you know works and you just leave it alone until the end of time, right? I mean, I know for me, there's certain things that I could do a better job of like going onto this platform or like maintaining this particular avenue of sales, but the amount of time it takes me to maintain that is just not worth it to me because I've tried it in the past. I didn't really, nothing really came out of it. And Mm so, you know, I'm going to stick with what I already have a workflow for managing, basically.
0: Figure out what you gain by running your own web store before you try to run your own web store. Mm, That's true. It may very well work out for you that you would rather and that you can and are happy to run your own web store. Great. I can tell you that I'm not happy doing that.
1: Well, and so, for example, I do run my own web store because... It's worth it for me to both capture the the traffic uh, of you know going to my specific site versus other sites, but it's also worth it to me to keep the margin that I'm not losing to other platforms, which mm-hmm. is well deserved, right? If you have digital stuff uh, on the One Bookshelf network, the Drive Through RPG or RPG Now, right? They're taking between thirty and thirty five percent, depending on your deal uh, or what what level that you're if you're exclusive with them or not, and it is worth it because the infrastructure that they've created over there is good, and the market is there. Yeah, I think there are, there right are like, eyeballs there. Yeah, yeah, like right now, like in 2016, if you're publishing digital stuff and you're not on on drive through RPG slash RPG now, they're essentially one site, just different front ends at this point. You are missing the market of PDF buyers for analog games. That's just where the people are. That's where people go to find PDFs. Yeah. So you can choose not to be on that for whatever other reasons, you know, there's ideological reasons, there's not wanting to pay the the cut reasons, like all Definitely. of those reasons, but that's a choice that you need to make. Do I want to be in that market or do I want to not be in that market? For me, it's worth it to balance, to be there, but also have my own thing, you know, keep the margin on the things I sell through my site, but get the get the get the eyeballs and the downloads that I get through them. And that's worth, you know, that volume is worth the cut for me. But it depends on the product. Some some of my stuff I could just take to my site and I'd be okay, and some stuff I could drop off my site entirely, and that would also be okay because most of those
0: sales come through drive through. Right, right. Um, so it depends on the on your catalog as well. One way that it, that, that it was taught to me that it helped me make sense of it was: I'm paying something either way. I'm either paying in gas mm-hmm. and printing costs and stuff to go to the post office and mail the stuff myself, or I'm paying drive through case by case and and their POD outfit to print and ship this stuff. Right. So, i they're paying that in their kind of commission and mm-hmm. their fee, uh, their percentage, or I'm paying that in actual in my time and all that stuff. Right. right? So, the question is, yeah, what is it? Was the easier price for you to pay? Which is the right price for you? When and how do you want to pay it? Um, that is a decision that you get to make absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super important to know that some of this stuff you're going to, I mean, you're going to end up paying one way or the other. Yeah. To get this stuff done, none of it is free.
1: As an example of using that decision to feed back into your design process for Masks of the Mummy Kings, when I decided to make that as a standalone printed thing, I I could do a digital print run like I do with some of my other stuff and keep it in stock and mail it out when people order it. Or because I haven't done this with drive-thru before, I was like, or I can set it up as a title for their print-on-demand service, not have to handle it, and to see how it does. And that kind of drove some things about how much writing I did for it. I drove the layout because, you know, there are certain formats that they need. So I had to kind of make sure that what I was designing was going to fit into their workflow. I made that decision before I did the design instead of after. And that way I was able to, you know, make better layout decisions suitable to those goals. So making these decisions about where is this going to sell, what am I willing to spend on it, and all that stuff. I think it gets easier as you build a catalog because you have something to base that off of. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you can start using those decisions to inform your visual and, and layout decisions and also your game design. If it's like, if this is going to be a game I want to have available on drive through make sure that it's accessible to go through these
0: digital delivery systems or yeah. whatever. So Nathan, with something like Masks of the Mummy Kings, which you knew from the outset during design as you're as you're putting it together to be available for sale, print on demand, to drive through, and there's P- it's available as PDF too, there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you set the price for that? And what is the price for Uh
1: So it's a seven dollar PDF or a ten dollar black and white book, soft cover. And it's a short. It's short. It's like thirty four pages or something like that. Oh, okay.
0: That's weird. I, I remembered it being a little longer than that, but but it i could believe it it's be a nice one. it's a, it's a good size I like it. it's a good backpack size
1: yeah so it's it's relatively small and also yeah if you get the if you get it in print you get the pdf with it like that's my my thing i bundle
0: you know pdf for
1: for the 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 cover price of the print for all my stuff that's in print yeah and so i guess that decision was driven by you know, this game, primarily in PDF, it's kind of like the, the little um, mask sheets and everything are designed to be like printed out on a home printer and cut apart and whatnot. So I set the price. So $7. This is, this is my mental process and it doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but like I could do it at five because uh, that's kind of impulse buy by territory. Mm-hmm. But it's a good game. And I think anyone that would buy it at five this is a this is a rhetorical trick i learned from kevin allen jr uh anyone who, who would buy it at five will probably still buy it at seven uh anyone who wouldn't buy it at five i'm not going to get them anyway so why leave that extra couple dollars on the table Ten seems a little aggressive compared to the other kinds of games that are in its niche i mm-hmm. think but it's a good price point for the print book because you're getting the print book and you're essentially if you're a, a drive through nerd mm-hmm. and kind of looking at the stuff like the the three dollar upcharge is essentially the the price of printing it like it's a little it's right. a little more right like it's not very expensive to print because it's so short but it's in the realm of you're essentially getting the same content you're just you're kind of paying for the the paper and ink right is kind of the right how much that upcharges for this game in particular
0: what is your cut then per book
1: so i'm non-exclusive right so so i only see 65 percent of each sale so when I sell a PDF at seven dollars, I get four fifty five. Uh, when I sell the book at ten dollars, I get four eighty nine, and that's kind of the difference right. that factors in. Like I make a couple cents on the on the printing, right? Right. Essentially, so as a publisher, the margin is relatively
0: consistent, and that's kind of what I'm looking at is yeah. the margin, which which is also appealing in the sense that it doesn't. It means that you're not having any real incentive. To drive people hard to one product over the other let right. them pick the form that's right for them
1: exactly like yeah. I'm kind of agnostic as to which kind sells because I kind of get the same margin either way
0: it's accessible in both formats and people can can pick what they prefer okay and then now do you remember roughly how many words are in masks of the mummy kings
1: with the examples and there's a couple of lists and whatnot um, but roughly 8,000 maybe? Oh. 8,000 to 8,500.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to say 8,500 just in case because li- to include lists and things like that mm-hmm. and a character sheet and whatever. Yeah, and the character sheets. So it is considerably less than a penny a word that you make off a single copy, which is, of course, a single yeah. copy is going to be no. – Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But now, how many copies do you think you have to sell – in order to get a word rate you're happy with, how much do you want to get paid per word? It's a little complicated.
1: A, I don't, that's not how I, I think about my publishing. Right. Um, I don't think about the word count. I kind of think about projects kind of holistically, like how much should I spend on it versus how much am I right. going to make back? Right. So the word count, I don't track as much because that's not my metric. But what I was thinking about is so, first of all, I got paid for it once already because it was originally published in Worlds Without Master. Mm. And. Epi pays basically like a flat rate for contributions. And so if I remember right, I think that was like $200. Okay. So upfront, I got paid to publish this game. And then I spent 300 on the cover art because I wanted a nice piece of cover art or 350 I forget exactly, but Some, something like that. So if I'm taking this purely as one project and kind of lumping all of the costs and expenses, which is what I generally try to do, even though this one occurred over so much time that gets a little complicated, but that means that, you know, I have spent about 150 on mm-hmm. on it between what I got paid, what I spent and, you know, some other little miscellaneous bits and bobs. So if I'm making 455 per whatever, either one that I, that I do, I need to sell about 33 copies to make up the difference. Right. So the next metric is how many of those have
0: I sold? By the way, if you're curious, anybody listening is curious, if what is generally considered the baseline word rate for freelance writing for genre work is about a nickel a word. And Nathan, you would need to sell at 455 of margin. You're going to need to sell about a hundred copies to make a nickel a word. Okay. Okay. And that's, of course, that doesn't count your layout time design work for the book itself. Right. Game design. Mm-hmm. This is just for putting it into a fixed form.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so since it released in July, and it's now October, middle of October, I've sold somewhere. I'd have to look up another another number to make this a firm number, but I've sold between 50 and 60 copies. Okay. So I'm in in the black on it from my perspective. I guess I'm not up to the per word rate from that perspective, but I probably will be in another year.
0: If you're curious though, interestingly, you've made just more per word now than Mm. you did when you sold it to Worlds Without Master. Mm. And I think- Epi does great work and it's a really cool audience. Like every time I've talked to people at shows that are oh, actors yeah. of that audience, it's a cool audience. So in other words, because it's a flat rate and you decide how many words you're gonna put into it. Mm-hmm. You, you can write yourself out of the nickel a word or four cents a word spot real easy when you're writing a game and be like, Well, I'll just go ahead and toss in another two thousand words because it'll make the game better. Right. And that's fine. But what I'm saying is that that's a cool publication and I wouldn't like I don't think that was sales loss by any means. No,
1: no, no. Right? Definitely As, that not. leads
0: to people who who now are excited to see the a larger version of it, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So and then this is just gonna exist forever, right? Like right. until I I decided to take it down. So it's, it's a long tail product. It's yeah. not it's not a big splash, make a bunch of money up front thing. It, it already exists. I'm going to polish it up, put it out there. It has a little niche. It'll exist until something changes about publishing, basically, and right. I decide to change it. All of that is kind of an example of strategically thinking about how am i going to publish this in a way that balances these things of the amount of work and time I can put into it, the amount of money I want to spend on it based on all the other things that I'm spending money on and publishing and whatever. What's the audience that I think is there and how realistic is it that this is going to reach that audience and then make some money? For me, I have to like balance all of those ideas in order to determine what's the best way to publish this thing.
0: Right. And that's one of the reasons why I do think when I think about word count, why I do think about word count is because it helps me answer: Do I want to publish this myself? Mm-hmm. Do I want to try to sell it to somebody mm-hmm. and have them publish it and get a nickel a word? And sometimes I'm willing to essentially take a long term pay cut to do that because it means I won't have to do the fulfillment. I don't have to manage the store with. If it's right. going to be PDF, if it's a PDF friendly product, I almost never sell it to somebody else unless I really mm-hmm. like the publisher and want to, or it's their game. Right? Yeah. But by and large, uh, self publishing is the is the way to go for me and new games. Um, in the hopes that maybe a publisher will buy it, do a, a cooler edition of it someday, hmm. and we can work together. But that's then not selling it at a word work for higher word rate type thing. Right. In the long run, that metric of a nickel a word is a is a good floor to keep in mind. And it's your right to say. I'll sell my own thing for less, you know, such that I get less than that or such that it takes me a year or two years to make my nickel, especially when you're building an audience or giving back to an audience or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Uh, but that's just a milestone that I use. That's uh, the Science Fiction Writers Association and and numerous other writing uh, organizations have settled on the nickel as kind of the floor for freelancing. Mm-hmm. There are lots of exceptions. And ideally, the, the funny thing that we like to say is that the great pulp writers of the previous century went broke and died hungry on the same rate we're making today. So... <laughs> It is not a good rate, right? but depending on how how much you control the product you're making and the accessibility of some of that stuff and the fact that the long tail exists now in a way that it didn't because things would be available in perpetuity, mm-hmm. the math gets a little bit different. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you as an example, when I look at like DMs Guild, which I think is a terrific endeavor –
1: and is also hosted on the One Bookshelf.
0: Yeah, hosted on One One Bookshelf framework. technology and yeah. their framework, and creates a is a is a separate dynamic from the Open Gaming License, but is a specific dynamic in which you get to work with some of Wizards' intellectual property and write D and D expansions mm-hmm. within a different set of boundaries, a wider set of boundaries than the Open Game License. Like you can write for the Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. It's it's really cool. And it's a lot of fun if you wanted to work on those things. But one is a new market, two as a as a community market, and three as a primarily fan driven and I say amateur with love in the sense that a lot of the a lot of people are making their first publications on mm-hmm. DM skill which is great. I'm super excited about that aspect of it. The problem is that there's a lot of very unrealistic pricing going on, and it's going on in the low end. People mm-hmm. are charging not enough for what they worked on. Mm-hmm. And I've, there's some great stuff that I've seen. And full disclosure, I have a product up there, and I, I did lay out a template that is used for a couple of products up there. Uh, There's a book on alchemy by Joseph character that I did lay out on, for example, Mm -hmm. and I think it's a a very strong product, but there's a variety of great things like classes and spells and adventures in particular. I'm a sucker for, but they're also where you get, here's a book of 10,000, whatever, and it's pay what you want. And I'm like, if each one of those things is one word, that's 10,000 words. They pay what you want. That's not right. Yeah. You deserve money for what you made. And so, A lot of people are undercutting themselves. And I don't know what the range is that people are getting in the Pay What You Want. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of those are free downloads. And maybe somebody comes back and pays
1: later. I can't speak to DMs Guild, right? But uh, for my Pay What You Want stuff, the average, uh, depending on the title, is between. For someone who pays, right? Like you don't count all the free downloads, right? When you do this average, because then it's zero. <laughs> right. But uh, the the average for pay to pay what you want um, on my stuff varies between just
0: over a dollar to just under two dollars. Yeah, me too. I've I I've considerably less. I think pay what you want stuff. I have mm-hmm. a lot of a fair amount of free stuff floating around, but mm-hmm. I have a handful of pay what you want things. I
1: and my pay what you want things, I have a a full game, and then mostly like s- uh, stuff that I've released through Patreon. So I essentially already got paid by. Right my wonderful patreon backers and now it is out into the world right uh and then supplemental stuff that is helpful but not critical to play and thus if you enjoy it you know you can you can throw me a tip but i'm not gonna gate it behind a, a, a paywall because it's it's right. cool stuff
0: right i don't know how much free stuff there is on dm's go but there's a lot yeah and pay what you want is in a lot of circumstances it is essentially free i mean it, it, it is free yeah with
1: it's a, it's a formalized tip jar, like back, back when people, pay what you like, want yeah. yeah, it's like when that, back when people had like PayPal tip jar buttons and, and yeah. you know,
0: beer money buttons and stuff like that. Like it's a formalized infrastructure for that. And it can be a good way to show people that you can make a good product. But my personal opinion, especially at something like the DMs Guild is if you're going to put up something for pay what you want put it up at the same time that you have a product available for buck 99 or 299 mm-hmm. or something so that they can look at it and go this was great let me get the other one because yeah. people almost never and in fact it's not super easy to go back and pay what you want for a thing you already got mm-hmm. that's not a slight against people who forget to do it or who you know it's just the, we all have stuff going on yeah i people think people do it It you, happens
1: using free and pay what you want products to cross sell your things that are not free and pay what you want is i think is a is a common strategy and yeah. and one that is worth engaging in yeah i think you can't Except for some very limited time stuff, kind of like this thing that usually costs this much is pay what you want for a week, like sale kind of right. things. Everything that I've read about pay what you want and my personal experience is all that it is, you're, you're essentially getting one to two dollars from the paid downloads from them. So being realistic about how much you're going to make from that is, is kind of important because maybe it's easier just to do it for free, right. you don't want to deal with it.
0: Um, maybe you won't over make it at that point, right? Like, yeah. for example, the first thing I have a thing up on the DMs Guild mostly just to see what it would do. I promoted it almost not at all. To f- and to find out what the DMs Guild would do just as a product on a site mm. Right when I'm not when I'm not otherwise trying to drive to it. So it's between eight and 10,000 words. And it right now it's made a 20th of a cent per word. Mm-hmm. That's not two cents a <laughs> right. word, a 20th of a cent per word. Mm. One, thank, thank heavens, I essentially had, I mean, all I did was formalize stuff out of my notebook. It's a lot of it is fictional stuff, is content that way, random tables and things. So the actual design time and stuff was modest, and that's for sale for two ninety nine And I agonized over that price. Many and mighty thanks to everybody who's, who's already picked it up. I'm actually very proud of it. I thought it turned out really nicely. It's a player character race and a lot of the cultural stuff they put into the world with them. <laughs> but there are also products out there for the same price that are 60 and 100 pages of stuff that... In a desire to be seen and recognized and beloved by the community, people are under are underselling themselves. Mm-hmm. And on a long enough timeline, that can that can be okay if the tide starts to lift back again and everybody says, "Okay, great. Now that I know that these ten creators are awesome,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and their next products cost three ninety nine or two ninety nine a piece, I will give Annie and Michelle and David their three ninety nine because I know their stuff is great." But I'm concerned that the market is gonna stay in at that low price point right now. Everything's, that there's gonna be an expectation that because it was on the DM's Guild, it should be cheaper. Mm-hmm. pricing. So, I don't know how many people are making a mistake for so many people are making a choice, for right. how many people are, whatever.
1: It, it, it's a reality of our age, right, is that there's a glut of content. Yeah, There are a lot of people making things
0: to put out into the world. And, and everything that has been made in the last 20 years is still there.
1: Right. So there's an excess of supply. So prices are low. And that's just how market forces work in our society. I think one way to approach it is the way that you're approaching it, right? Which is like, I want to be realistic about what people are willing to pay. I think that my thing is appropriately priced which may or may not be true. I see right. these other things that seem inappropriately priced to me, but I don't know how they're selling. So who knows? You kind of just have to make the best decision you can with the information you have. right? right? Um, but the other way to look at it is like if this thing's only making a 20th of a cent per word for me, maybe my next thing, if I sell one copy at $10, that's right. already better. So maybe I should just price it higher and wait for the the handful of people who are willing to pay that. And that's just what it is. You can kind of, Figure out your strategy in terms of like, what am I really going to get out of this?
0: Or do I cut it in half and sell three times as many? <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah. yeah or yeah. that. And one of the benefits of doing stuff in digital is that you can make those decisions on the fly. You haven't right. invested in a production chain and have a stack of books that now you want to suddenly raise the price on. Right. Like right. that doesn't usually go well. So that's all to say that you're not necessarily locked into these decisions. I right. think like you can, you can make a choice, let it sit gain the information from it and then make another choice either about that product or your next product. You know, If your goal is to make more per word on these kinds of things for DMs Guild, now you have a baseline.
0: Which to be clear was essentially my goal for this product right. was to find out what this price point yeah. with what a, is this a, a kind of full color printable does mm-hmm. and to teach myself layered PDFs. So it's been successful as far as I'm concerned design-wise. Right. What it's not successful at right now is, I and mean, in part it's not successful at the second part because it's only been out for not even a month, mm-hmm. um, but is getting me enough data. So I'm waiting on more data. So right. I'm not in a rush. But the other thing is to find out will I do it again? Right. And that's the real question. Is there enough returns, yeah.
1: monetarily or otherwise, right. to do this again? Yeah. And yeah. sometimes the answer is no. So going to the other end of the spectrum, we've both used Kickstarter to do upfront funding for a new project. We both use Patreon, which is.
0: Yeah higher frequency, lower intensity, I mm-hmm. think that's fair. Yeah.
1: Or lower volume, higher frequency, lower volume. These are tools that we use for different purposes, right? Releasing stuff for free or for print on, or for pay what you want or for print on demand is one rough end of, of our continuum. As we love these continuums. <laughs> so there's there's that world. There's the I have capital from something, from my last product, from whatever my savings. From, from inheriting
0: my candy bar fortune, whatever it is. Right, whatever it is. You
1: have some, some amount of capital. You have you have a, a pot of money and you can just spend it on production. Yeah. And there's the these crowdfunding services that I think as as we talk are, are kind of the other part of the publishing almost everyone at this point.
0: Um, they've changed for some people pre-order, for other people production mm-hmm. all over. They're massive and I hope for everyone's sake because they're great for accessible folks and for the established publishers. Mm-hmm. That they're around for a while mm-hmm. um, but they changed a lot of the answers to a lot of the questions and a lot of the design questions right. that come up with this sort of stuff yeah they're yeah. massive changes to the dynamic
1: so when we say like kickstarter that's kind of
0: shorthand for kickstarter indiegogo other platforms that are similar there are uh, whole podcasts devoted to crowdfunding because there's a lot of material there that more than we're able to cover <laughs> in part of an episode so.
1: but the suitedness of a project for crowdfunding is different than the suitedness of a project for releasing for free or for releasing for a, a print-on-demand. How do you think that affects other design decisions? Or I guess, how do you know when you're working on a project that maybe this should be something that I crowdfund? You
0: know what's interesting is I can tell you specifically ways in which I have been wrong about it, which I think help to triangulate a way to be right about it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I have friends who have designed things. Uh, and. Kickstarters that I've been stretch goals on and things like that that have done it right, so that I, I know a couple ways to do it right. But in similar to the way that you don't learn to write novels, you learn to write this novel. I think it's similar. Yeah. In both cases of my successful kickstarters, the success of the Kickstarter changed the product to such an extent as to be nigh upon disastrous in general. But not a disastrous wrong, but but problematic. And the reason there being is that there's a notion that if if you need to kickstart when you're done, and your Kickstarter ends up being about as successful as you thought it was going to be. Give a certain percentage on what that is in either direction. Good. Great. Right. You're like, all I need to do now is buy art. I've right. got With the art direction done, everything. I just need to buy art. I can't pay, pay artists. I need I want to pay artists. Yeah. So I gonna-
1: need I need ten thousand dollars to buy the art that I want for this book. Right. If I you know, you end up like, Oh, I I made twelve thousand dollars, right. Game on.
0: You're you're in the zone of of your expectations and what you set yourself up for. Right. Yeah. So to a certain extent, that that implies also – and this is one of the issues where I have a philosophical disagreement with some of what some of the crowdfunding has become. Mm-hmm. That, that's misstated. It's not that I have a problem with what it is. I have a problem that it could be more than it is, mm-hmm. which is that for some folks, like uh, especially when a publisher, an established publisher goes and kickstarts something that is essentially ready, they're just looking for the print cost and it how much to print. That's a perfectly reasonable use of Kickstarter. Yeah, it's more of the, the pre-order model. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of also new folks, whether it's in games or video games or fiction or whatever it is, but who just say, I don't know, I, I can't even make this. I I've got it pretty much sketched out, but I can't make it unless I have mm-hmm. I need the time, the hours to make it, and I can't put the hours in unless I can get take 10 hours or 50 hours off of work. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So they're at a different stage in the process. Right. One of the things when you see when you're crowdfunding and you have the interaction with the audience, which is super valuable, and you mm-hmm. have that interaction with the data is the realization that is that a Kickstarter can be almost like being at the other end of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Which is that when you get that data, the thing that you are measuring changes. Mm-hmm. Among other things, the classic example is we funded 10 stretch goals. Oh, dear God, now I have to right. make t-shirts and yeah, now coffee my, mugs.
1: Or we funded 10 writing stretch goals. Now the book is going to be 50% longer. Right. And all and, those cascading effects, right? Right. The layout. Needs to accommodate that. What if I already have a printing quote? That needs to change. That's a much like, heavier book to ship. It's a much heavier book to ship. Like all that stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: So the notion of Kickstarter, whether it's a silver bullet for a young creator or for an established creator, whether it's a metric, like a data machine, whether it is a pre-order engine or an actual Kickstarter that is designed to start the project rather than end the project. Right. For all that it is super valuable on the grand scheme, and it certainly is, it is also kind of its own art. And yeah. being good at it, which I am not, is a separate thing from being good at any of the other models we're talking about, like like pay what you want right. or sale after and all that stuff.
1: There is a a similar but distinct set of skills and habits. I think to execute, especially a large, like a, a successful in terms of over successful of overfunding of mm-hmm. drawing more than you had anticipated. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a strategy of of anticipating, having your expectations be realistic, but your target is low mm-hmm. because you're expecting that overfunding. Mm-hmm. But like true overfunding, where you where you were like, I never expected two thousand people right. to be interested in this thing. That is a different set of skills and. Coping mechanisms yeah. and business practice abilities yeah. than writing and designing and publishing a game. This is one of those things where there's a lot of resources out there that are much easier, I think, to access by searching for this kind of stuff and reading blog posts and all that yeah. stuff. So
0: we're both, not, both we're, Kickstarter and Kickstarterers, right? Have a lot of great information on right. stuff out in the world.
1: So like, we're not going to go too deep into the weeds on that. How to do that management or how to set up your campaign or whatever. But in my experience, this all comes back to to your goals and your intentions, right? Being really clear about what, as a creator, do you want to get out of this? And then applying that to the structure of the platform and applying that to the quote unquote best practices that currently exist, because those change over time too, yep. Yep. of what people expect uh, out of a Kickstarter and all that stuff. If You're going to a crowdfunding platform to fund your game. Do you need the actual amount of money for these reasons? And you have your list of reasons and you have your budget and you have your numbers. Are you going because you don't know if anyone else is going to want this and you want to find out? Are you going because you know that this is a way to market the game and it's kind of immaterial about how much attention there is, but it will raise the profile of you and your project? Uh, It'll get it in front of more people than you could otherwise. These are all commingled things that crowdfunding does, and they all interact with each other. But you can prioritize, and I think you should, Mm -hmm. prioritize which of those things you're actually looking for. And then find the wisdom of people who are doing it to kind of structure that actual success state for yourself. How do you approach getting your game out into the world? In my experience, there's been like a couple different buckets that these approaches kind of fall into. So in one area is this kind of no no investment bootstrapping idea, which is like, I'm going to spend no money up front, going to produce a thing to the best of my ability. You know, I'm going to get it out on whatever platform I can that doesn't cost me anything. And then its success from then on will then fund the next thing, whether that's the next version of it or the next project or whatever. So that can be the- And then just
0: keep stepping up.
1: Right, and then you just, you, you keep stepping up, you keep ratcheting up ratcheting as up, your yeah. portfolio expands and as your catalog grows. So in this case, doing a basic PDF that you put up on drive through for $2 or whatever, mm-hmm. and then once you've made X amount, then you, you can spend that money on cover art for the next thing, and then that becomes a PDF and it goes up for $5 and on and on, whatever your, the kind of things that you design and, and the goals that you have for your your products. This is super, super easy to do with print on demand, right? Because you don't need to spend money up front to print books. So for a while, the strategy was digital only. And a, and a lot of the time, especially the early days of the Forge, it was like sell PDFs until you make enough money to do a short print run, right? And then once you do the short print run, then you sell the books, uh, which is what people are a little more, you sell more books than you would PDFs at that point in time. Right. So then the, your sales out of those books then fund whatever your next thing is if you do another edition or your next game. With print-on-demand, you can just start right off with a book. You don't need to go through that digital-only step.
0: Uh, start simultaneously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: So there's that bucket. There's the next one, which I think is probably most common, which is where you have some money to spend. And so you you want to spend it strategically in order to put out the best thing you can in whatever domain it is. Uh, a lot of the time is paying for cover art um, or paying for layout or something in that realm, something where there's a skill that directly translates into how the book hits people or the or the digital file hits people and they right. read it or, or see it. I have some money to devote to my hobby and so I'm going to, I have this money to spend on something. And then that is going to turn into the thing that you're selling, a digital file or your print-on-demand book or whatever. I'm going to spend $300 on cover art for my Masks of the Mummy Kings. Hmm. And then it's just going to sell until it pays for itself and then it's just the long tail and it's just money. Yeah, I think this is pretty common. This is what happens when you start building a catalog. You start having some money that isn't necessarily spoken for and you can decide what to do with it with your next product. Crowdfunding then comes in and kind of is like, here's a big bucket of money up front for you to spend on executing this vision is kind of what I think about. And that kind of slots into that same mental model. You're still kind of thinking about what do I want to spend money on? How can I strategically approach my investment? And then there's the bucket of kind of traditional printing and publishing, where you spend a bunch of money up front on you know, printing 2,000 books or 5,000 books or whatever. Right. And you're invested in some kind of distribution, some kind of warehousing, some kind of way to get those to end users. And the margin on those is such that you only need to sell a certain percentage of them to pay for the whole print run.
0: Right. Yeah, with, the, with the thinking being that you'll pay X and make back 4X right. or whatever the percentage is, that, that mm-hmm. by paying $10,000, you'll get X books, mm. and those books will sell such so that you make forty thousand dollars, right? Which becomes the money to, to do it again, mm. right? And, and so pay your employees. This is
1: the institutional version of having some money to spend up front, right? Right, but instead of having three hundred dollars to spend on cover art, you have. to spend on printing books or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) And then you're engaged in the marketplace of retail sales and making sure your margins are enough to cover when you sell through distribution and all that kind of stuff, because you're counting on volume. So you're going from a low cost, low volume model at at the one end to the high cost, high volume model and Kickstarter uh, and crowdfunding kind of can poke in at any of those levels, but I think often is, is used to transition to having upfront money to spend. So yeah, so those are kind of the the range of approaches and and blending the things that we've talked because you can use your your zero cost thing to raise your name recognition. So you do a pay what you want thing to gauge how much how much audience there actually is, and then you use that money to do a nice little illustration for your thing that you're spending three dollars on as a PDF. Like right, right, like that can those can all interact in that bootstrapping.
0: At that high volume level, the analogy I used to use, and I can't remember where I learned it, but is that it's like catapulting your product into the dark into the night mm-hmm. and hoping somebody catches it mm-hmm. and you're like well I don't know how many times to fire this catapult because I don't know if there's 10 people out there trying to catch these, these pillows that I made or these tchotchkes that I made or a thousand but I better make a thousand just in case there's a thousand people out there and then you're firing them off into the dark yeah. and what Kickstarter does is turn the lights on.
1: Right, because like in the 90s, there are still, and this was, a, I think, a very kind of in the 90s thing. There's a ton of people out there who are like, I'm going to print 2,000 books of my game, so I will raise that money somehow. Um, I have money to spend, or I'll get a loan, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I will go to a couple conventions with my books, and I'll sell a couple books, and I'll still have 1,800 books <laughs> right. sitting in my garage and three years later I will I will pulp them and move on. Yeah, because the lights were off.
0: There was no There's no way of knowing that there were only two hundred people who wanted this thing. Right. Yeah.
1: But now you can find those two hundred people yeah. and not have to spend all that money up front. And that's a pretty well worn transition if you want to look into the history of this stuff. Like it, it's out there.
0: But it's it was pardon the pun. It was it's game changing to the industry. Oh yeah I yeah. have that yeah that that ability.
1: I mean it enabled like my business, right? Like I depend on all of those audience Targeting tools uh that we have that we didn't have 20 years ago. Yeah. Thanks for listening
0: to the Design Games
1: Podcast. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider supporting either myself or Will at either of our respective Patreons.
0: I am at patreon.com slash wordwill, and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...